I'm Cody Royal, and this is the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is a one-on-one discussion about the unique role of captains and features Sam Walker, founding editor of Wall Street Journal's daily sports coverage and author of The Captain Class, voted best business book by New York Times, Sports Illustrated, Amazon, Strategy in Business, and The Globe and Mail. This episode is sponsored by Leaders in Sport, who have a special offer for you later in the show. But for now, enjoy the conversation. Sam Walker, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cody. Really looking forward to this, mate. Um, uh, we got in touch a little while ago, but we're, we're finally on the phone. Um, the reason I gravitated towards your work was that you've come out with a, a whole new theory around how teams actually work and, and leadership. And so we're going to dive into that today. And the first question I want to ask you, though, is something that I tried to do with where others won't was champion some new ideas. And what we don't talk about with writers is those moments, and they happen every 15 or 20 days where you're sitting there in front of the screen and you're wondering whether you're batshit crazy and this idea is silly and whether you should continue. And your book took about 10 years to materialize. So I'm wondering 11. how many, exactly, 11. Yeah. <laughs> so how many times did you have that internal dialogue wondering what the hell you're doing and whether this was something that you wanted to continue? I would, you know, it's funny. I was so lost in the rabbit hole of this whole thing that I, there weren't many moments where I thought, what am I doing? And the problem I was having was just believing what I was finding. Yes. You know, and it took me so long to really think, you know, I, I'm, I'm an empirical person, you know, like I, I really try to be as objective as I can with ideas. And I'd done so much research and the pattern was so clear. And I mean, it sounds self-serving, but, but it was disturbing to me because I, you know, I started this out. I thought, you know, I was going to write a column for the Wall Street Journal. I was writing a column. I thought, okay, I'm going to say, here are the 10 best teams in sports history, and here's what I think they had in common, right? It was going to be 900 words, and it was going to take <laughs> two weeks, you know? And I started researching it, and I just Googled, like, greatest teams of all time. And right away, I realized I was in trouble because, you know, every there's lots of lists out there, but they're all completely subjective to some guy's opinion, or they're based on some dumb statistic, or they just cover one sport or, or they're really biased to the sports that are popular in that country. And no one had ever done like a serious empirical study of here are the greatest teams and here's the criteria. And you know, it was so basic. Like first of all, like, what's a team? You know, like is a yeah. boxing team, is that a team? Or just a bunch of people wearing the same uniform, you know, and so I had to define what I what I think a team is, and then I had to define excellence. And there's so many different ways to do it. There's no one algorithm you can use, you know, to to, to lump all teams in. And so finally, I just came up with a with a list of criteria, and you know, started looking at every single team in the history of sports. I mean, 25,000 teams, you know, from 37 different codes in, in, in uh, since 1880s, and you know, it was just became this mammoth undertaking. So, you know, 11 years later, you know, I I wasn't. I thought I was done. I realized I'm not because you know, there's still so much more to to dig into. But the the thing that kept me going, you know. I never thought it was silly. I thought, wow, I think there's something here that completely surprises me. I never would have imagined. And so in a way, it was almost this anxiety that I had. It was like, I got to do this right. Like, I got to tell this story well. 
because I feel like if I don't tell it well, like this, this idea is not going to get through. And I think it was important. So, you know, I think that's what kind of drove me through. It, it was more anxiety about being able to, to be the person who was trying to tell this story as opposed to um, whether there was a story there. Does that make sense? It does. So what you're saying is you're Winona Ryder in Stranger Things. You were just, you were just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was the only. I felt like I was the only sane person in the same world. No, I, I. The thing is, when I started to, to, this is the comforting thing about it was when I started to see this pattern, that it was the captain and the tenure of the player who was the leader of the team, that that was the one thing that almost overlapped these winning streaks precisely over and over again. Not just for the, even the seventeen teams that I put in the top tier, but another hundred. 20 teams that were just almost there you know I that pattern was so clear and um you know I just you know I, I didn't believe it to some extent I just thought like you know I, I I tried everything to to I kicked the tires in every way to make sure that I wasn't mistaken and that I wasn't just you know suffering from you know confirmation bias or something mm-hmm. you know and, and I kept looking at it but um but you know beyond that I it was it was it was just this sense that you know I had to tell the story and and um, and that really was was what um, what pushed me through you know the whole process. Yeah, and so the the way that you open the book is by describing the process that you went through to identify these teams, which is one of the most captivating things I've read in a long time. I'm not a data geek. I'm I'm more anecdotal, and and everything in my book is is anecdotal, but. Uh, I don't want to talk about that today because I, I want people to go out and, and pick up the book and, and read it themselves because it's fascinating how you got down to these uh, group of teams and then also the, the second tier teams. But for me, your book, The Captain Class, it's a sports book that's been named the best business book of the year by you know New York Times and Strategy and Business, Globe and Mail here in Canada, Sports Illustrated, you know, reputable newspapers coming out naming your book. Uh, What is your theory and then why is it so important to the business world? Why have they latched onto it? That was a shock to me, by the way. I mean, I, I, you know, we positioned this as a sports book and with a publisher and, you know, all the media and everything we were going after was primarily sports. And you said it, you know, when we were talking before, which is, you don't know what your book is about until it's published and people tell you what it's about. And, yeah. and, and we just saw right away that the business readers were the ones who were engaging, you know, I mean, the sports readers liked it too, but it was really the business audience that was coming after it. And, you know, I think what it is, is I've I realized since, and, and I've discontinued to, to do research and think about these issues since the book came out. But um, what I think it is, is I think there's this incredible, just yawning, you know, gap between um, uh, the desire to create great teams and have great leaderships in, in business and the reality. And, you know, I just think there's there's a lot of confusion about how to do this. And I think that we're starting to see that businesses are really understanding that this idea of team chemistry and happy teams and good managers um, is so much more important than pay and perks and everything else they've tried to, to retain talent and to recruit talent. I think they're realizing that having you know, intelligently managed teams is so important. So I think they gravitate to anything right now that, that can kind of help with that journey. And I think the book, um, 
you know, because I work at the journal, I think a lot of them got exposed to it, you know, with the first excerpt that we did in the journal. And I think uh, it started to kind of spread in business circles very quickly. And I think it's really just an example. It's just a reflection of the need and, and the desire out there to to work on this topic. Absolutely. And, and that's the golden nugget. And that was the background of my book too. It was someone that's seen inside the locker room and seen inside the boardroom and, and had this sporting experience that was parallel to the business experience and looking at how we build teams and team dynamics and leadership and culture. And, you know, I was in a position where I was able to compare them, you know, business Monday to Friday, nine to five, and then go out, try and build a high performing national team Saturday and Sunday. And so my whole weeks were filled with how do we solve these problems? And it was stark. And I'm talking big business in Canada, companies that have the money and have the resources to, to figure this out. And so what do you say, can I ask you, what do you say to them? Because I, the question I get asked over and over is talk about what's different between business teams and sports teams. And, you know, I, I have an answer to the question, but I'm kind of curious what you, what you think, because you've, you've, been, you've been doing both simultaneously. I think there's nothing different. And I think it's pointing out the, the challenge that I tried to solve and, and have subsequently since I released the book with the blogs and the podcasts that I've been on is explaining that this sports stuff is deeper than bringing the quarterback in for a motivational speech and getting him to, getting him to talk about good old masculinity and that rah, rah, rah stuff that we were talking about before we came on. I, I think it needs to be pointed out that the sporting world for the last X amount of decades, all they've ever had is people. And so these people processes that we're now realizing are super important in the business world, they've been quality tested in sports for 50 years. We've been recruiting and building cultures and, and understanding that culture means something for generations. And so there's some really, really interesting nuggets. You've stumbled on a huge one uh, that, you know, I think we just need to connect the dots and say, yeah, it, it's more than just a, a motivational category. There's some really interesting team dynamics and uh, organizational culture things that we should be looking at that are perfectly replicable. Yeah, no, it's the same view. I mean, I, I think that, you know, teams are teams on some level. And when you get any group of people together with a common goal, I think, uh, you know, I think that, that a lot of the dynamics are in play are going to be similar. But that said, it took me a while after the book came out to realize what I was really researching and what the real significance of it was. So this is what I figured out, which was a huge breakthrough for me after the book came out, which was, you know, people would say, well, you, so you're telling us we could just have a great cab and we'll have a great team. And that's not things. <laughs> and, you know, what I realized is like, you need a million things. And the liberating thing for me in working with some of the teams I've worked with and some of the companies that I've been talking to about this is, um, I can't help you become great. I mean, I, you know, there, there's a million ways to get there, you know, and, and getting there in every different industry and, and sports too. It's, it's, it's a, it's a science and an art. I mean, you know, you have to figure out how to build a great team. What my research really is about, because I looked at sustained excellence. I looked at the teams that were dominant for 
you know, four years minimum was my bar. And, you know, some teams want as many as 19 years, you know, of, of being continuously great. And that's, that's what no one thinks about. And that's what I realized. It's like all these companies, all these teams are thinking we need to break that breakthrough. We need to win that championship. We need to build that great team. What they don't think about is what happens when they've done it. Because when you've done it, the game's totally different. Your responsibility is something else entirely. It's, you've got the talent. You've got the personnel. You've got the strategy. You've got the winning formula. It's about understanding what it is and how it works and making sure you maintain and sustain it properly. And, you know, so so I think what I'm trying to tell people that I talk to and teams I talk to is, you know, while you're building, you've got to think about what happens when you when you get there and, and what you've got and, and how easy it is to going to be to sustain that excellence because that's what no one thinks about especially in sports when you see these teams that have a great season and they just can't replicate it you know because they make a few moves and they don't understand that they've just kind of thrown off the chemistry and, and the, the the formula that got them there so that's what i think the the real missing piece for me is and i see this in business and i see it in sports too it's the idea of like let's plan for for long-term success let's plan for you know, getting great and staying great as opposed to just, you know, winning that trophy, winning that ring and, you know, and then come what may. Right. So that's that's kind of what I've been what I've been doing since the book came out is is focusing on that. Well, it's confronting, too, because the the frameworks have are coming down. The frameworks that have worked for a long time that are around certain job verticals, certain disciplines within business, HR, for instance, they're all coming down. And so it's funny because you you can look at the literature, you know, books that are popular or have been popular this year, radical candor and principles, you know, basically (laughs) delivering straight messages and being honest. And, you know, these are the books that are at at the top of the charts and, and are really disrupting how people go about what they do in the business world and then you've got even the sporting world. I'm from Aussie rules and I look at the NFL and I'm like, why do you have one quarterback? You know, it's a, it's a game of smoke and mirrors. And if it's a game of smoke and mirrors and I've got three quarterbacks, why wouldn't I use all three of them? Why, why did, you know, why do the rest of the team have to disrespect the second string guy? Is that a necessary framework for the, the game that we play? And even you look at the guys uh, can barely field a punt from an Aussie punter because they kick it differently. And so, I think the whole thing is these frameworks over time that have built up that we're used to, and those are now being challenged across the board. And, and so there's, you know, there's vulnerability out there too. Yeah, no, I think people are realizing that. I mean, the, the thing that I, I love the fact that you mentioned the sort of anecdote versus data, and, you know, it is such a, a problem because, you know, we got set back in this whole process, I think, by the data revolution, especially in sports and Everyone's right about baseball, and you know, other sports have really made huge leaps in how they quantify things and how they find value in players and assess performance. And all that stuff is great, you know, don't get me wrong, it's all really important. But you know, there are certain things that defy quantification, right? And, and one of them is chemistry and leadership and things that you can't see. And you know, there's no test for it. I mean, it's really about how people behave. And that's the thing that astounded me about about the research I did, you know, was that the traits of the captain, of the lead captains, was really just behavior. It's just what choices you make and how you interact with the team and how you actually go about the business of leading. And, you know, it's, it's things that you can choose to do. It's not God-given talent or ability. It's something that, you know, it's a process. It's a series of principles and ideas that you can 
that anyone can pick up on and, and get better at. And, you know, I think what teams are finally realizing is they need to kind of do kind of what, what, what you've done and what I've done, which is, you know, anecdotes can be data, you know, and, and you can go through and use them the same way. And that's kind of what I did with these captains. I just, I just, I mean, I did deep, deep, deep profiles of them and every anecdote, I would kind of label it as some sort of behavior and I would just sock it away and look at the next one. And, you know, pretty soon I had a massive kind of grid of all these different anecdotes and I started to see patterns, you know, and I started to see that there were certain behaviors and things that they did in certain situations that were very similar. And, you know, in the end there were seven things that they all exhibited in some form. Um, so, and those to me were kind of the, the DNA, but the question for me and, and the reason this took so long was, you know, I think a lot of people, there's a lot of lazy methodology out there. And I knew that, you know, just because these, these people turned, happened to be great leaders and had seven common traits. I mean, correlation isn't causation, right? I mean, you know, just because they had these traits doesn't mean that they actually made their teams better. So that's where I really had to dig in and, and look at the science and, and figure out what, you know, science was telling us about behavior and how behavior affects groups. And, you know, in every case, I was able to find really strong scientific backing for the idea that this kind of behavior made teams great and made teams better. So I was able to show that these are the traits they had in common, but that here's how they also make the, the team better. And I thought that was really important because, you know, I, this is the problem. And this is a problem we always see with teams. It's like a lot, I talk to a lot of teams and, and managers and executives and, you know, they have in their mind some team that they were around that was good. You know, and maybe this team just won in one year. You know, and they're, but they were really good, or they won one championship or something. And they start to model that team as the example of what you want. But, you know, that rules out something. It rules out the idea of how, do, how you have sustained greatness versus just, you know, flashing the pan greatness. And they're different things. If you want to be great and you want to win one championship or even two, I mean, there's a million ways to do it, right? I mean, you, you know, there's, a, there's a, a thousand combinations. But, you know, what I was able to find by – really being systematic about it was that the teams that kept winning and had a culture of winning, um, they were all very similar. They all had the same kind of leadership dynamic. Yeah. And let's dig into one of those because one of the people that I hadn't read up too much on was Bill Russell. And I read your book on Kindle so I can see, you know, the parts that people highlighted and what I highlighted was your little anecdote, which was about a throwaway line in a New York Times article. And I think most people would have even considered it almost a throwaway line within your book that he skipped out on his Hall of Fame induction because he wanted his career to be remembered as a, a symbol of team play. And then you go further and talk about all these traits that we don't traditionally associate with strong leadership, especially in this period of time that the Celtics were winning all these titles and, and having that sustained success, like you said, that he basically didn't embody any of them. And so going back to that, kind of that, that framework idea as well, like why do we reward certain things and then how do we change that, uh, that thinking to, to go back towards kind of rewarding what you're talking about? How do we reward team success and these teams that create sustained success over time, you know, not just one year? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's a huge undertaking, I think, to change your point of view, because, you know, I know this firsthand, because, you know, I, I went into this and, 
you know, when I got to this list of great teams, you know, I didn't know where I was headed. I thought it would be talent, you know, and it wasn't talent. And I thought it was uh, tactics, right, or um, or resources or money, and, and it wasn't those things. I really thought it would be coaching. But, you know, the coaches of these teams were not great coaches when they showed up. Most of them had losing records or very little experience. I mean, they they weren't the this is the thing that all the teams shared in common. And, um, you know, it was – when I realized that it, that it had something to do with internal leadership, I think uh, I think that's when I realized how how broken the framework is. Because, you know, if you'd asked me to to build a perfect captain in a laboratory, um, you know, before I wrote this book, I, I mean, I think I would have, like a lot of people, I would have said, well, it would be the best player. This person takes a big shot with the game online, you know, who's uh, the, gives the most contribution to the outcome, right? And we think that's a leadership market. Someone who's charismatic, incredibly charismatic, and, you know, gives great speeches and, you know, never would introduce conflict into the team but always would diffuse it. And there's someone who's um, uh, great, easy to manage and, you know, manager's dream would never stir up trouble. Um, you know, someone who's very passionate, you know, and, and, and sometimes to a fault. All these things that I think we associate with – with leadership, I, I thought that, you know, like a lot of people, that leadership traits should be obvious, that you should be able to walk in and kind of see who the leader is uh, of a team. And I was just dumbfounded that none of that. It's not that those things aren't helpful on some level. It's just none of them are required. I mean, you do not have to be the star. Most of these captains were not the star. They were role no, players. I'll tell you what that is. Yeah. Is over time we've been polling people and we've been collecting what they like rather than what works. Right. And, and so over time, we've, we've built this list of these are the traits a, a leader should have, but they come from employee surveys in the boardroom, you know, in this kind of scientific lab, like almost like you were talking about. But that's not actually what works. It's just what people like. And, you know, people like to drive fast and drink beer and shoot guns too. Right. But it, that it, doesn't it, mean that... a deeper problem too, I think, which is that, you know, when we think about character... You know, we, we think of leadership and character as being tied, and they are. But, you know, I think when we think about character as a trait, we think that it's something, it's an individual thing. It's it's something that we possess. It's something that we uh, we have inside us. It's like we, it, as if it's in our DNA, right? And, and some people have great character and some people don't, as if it's this immutable force. But what I've realized in writing this book was that character is not really about, everyone says, you know, when they talk about character, they say, I, I'm sure you've heard this before, they're like, well, yeah, what do you do when it's four o'clock in the morning and you pull up to a red light, and there's no one around, you know, do you run the light or do you stay at the light? And that, to me, I hear that all the time, and people think that's kind of a measure of your character, and that's how we view it, as an individual thing. But, you know, look, if whatever you do in your personal life, if it's not affecting other people, like, I don't know, I don't really care. You know, I think we're character... Uh, shows up is in how you relate to other people and what you do with other people. And if you're in a group setting, you know, it's what you do when things are difficult, you know, and things are hard and things are, are going bad. It's what you do then. It's just how you behave, how what you say, what you look like, you know, what talent you were born with or anything inside you. It's just what do you do, you know, and, and how do you respond? And that's everything. And, you know, that's what most teams don't do. They don't look at those moments where everything could have fallen apart and really analyze who said, who did what in those moments. Because that's where character leadership emerges. It doesn't really emerge when everything's going great or, you know, when you look at people in isolation. That's not about character. It's really just in, in 
how they connect to others. You know, and, and I think you're just starting there, you know, whether you're in business or sport, you know, it just and just looking at uh, watching someone's behavior inside a group. What do they do? You know, and, and really, what do they do? And how do they spend their time? I mean, that's really where you need to start. And, you know, we have this silly convention of job interviews. You know, we call you in in your suit and tie and you sit down and we ask you all kinds of probing questions and we're looking for the right answers. And I just think that is absolutely the possibly the worst way to really measure someone's character because, you know, it's it's. It's it's an artificial situation, and you're really asking you're talking asking them to talk about themselves in isolation. When what you really want to know is how do they relate to people? No, that's it, and you can only tell that by observation. And you're exactly right. There's there's got to be better ways, and that's something that I've been trying to solve. I, I wrote my first three chapters. My background is recruitment on the corporate side, and so I was really interested in that, and and the again, drawing those differences between what we do in sports, which, you know, obviously there's a set of circumstances there where we get the data on the players and we get time with them to interview them. We get to observe them. We get to test them physically and all that sort of stuff. But there's no reason the equivalent can't exist in the business world. It's just one of those frameworks like we've been talking about that someone needs to pull down. And to be honest with you, I think the first company or set of companies that, that go and do that and stop you know, Googling the questions that Google ask their employees and just replicating those. I think there's going to be a, a whole heap of competitive advantage in that area for those people to, that those companies, sorry, to latch onto. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, I think there's, you know, there's some talk of situational interviewing and some companies try to do different things to, to see how people interact. But, um, but really it comes down to, to, to working their references and, and really, you know, asking, if you're, if you're going to ask them anything, don't, don't, try to figure out how confident they are, how, how much credit they're willing to take, because the great leaders don't take credit. I mean, they don't want credit. And they always will, you know, will, will default to, to, to having help of other people. You know, I think, I think the real key is just, you know, look at those moments when, when they were under pressure and what they actually did and, you know, what they did in those situations and how to handle them, because that, that is really the key. And, and it's just not something we spend a lot of time doing. No, it's not. You might need to entertain me for a little bit here because I'm going to be a homeboy for a second. Okay. There was, there was two Australian teams on your list, on the final list, the Collingwood Magpies and the Hockey Roos. And there was two Kiwi teams as well. We won't mention those. But the, it was really interesting to me as someone who's lived in North America for a decade and kind of been absorbed in the culture here and population theory is certainly something that we still talk about, particularly around sports. And here we are, we've got four teams that have made your list that are from a part of the world that has, you know, about 24, 25 million people collectively. So, and I'm sure you hadn't heard of the Collingwood Magpies before, correct me if I'm wrong, no. but what were you thinking when, when those guys ended up, you know, the Hockey Roos and, and Collingwood and, and even the All Blacks, what were you thinking when, when they ended up on the list and, and you had to head down there to kind of research what they were all about? Well, you know, originally the All Blacks were, were one of the teams that I was always fascinated by just because, you know, a 4 million country, of 4 million dominating the world, you know, the way they do. And, um, so, so that was one of the things I think that I had in my head when I started the research, but, um, but it wasn't just those teams. I mean, you know, it was this Cuban women's volleyball team from 
1990 to 2000, and I, I knew nothing about them, and I, I couldn't believe that they had not lost a match of any consequence in 10 years and just dominated the world with, you know, inferior athletes from a tiny, poor press country of 9 million and with no great tradition of volleyball. And, you know, they dominated the world. That that freakish quality and, and the Hungarian team, the Hungarian soccer team from the 50s, I didn't know much about, you know, which, did, you know, lost one match in five years, you know, from Hungary, which is the smallest, one of the poorest countries in Europe at the time. I mean, you know, it was a mess internally. And, and, you know, they had these weird looking kind of short players who didn't look like they even belonged in the field, and but they were unstoppable. And so I saw that pattern over and over. And, and I think Australia and New Zealand are, are just really epitomized that and have great sporting cultures, you know, and, and I think they have strong visions of leadership. And I think, you know, people come into teams and in those countries and have a much better understanding of what the job of the leader is. And um, I think that's a huge advantage. But, you know, I think beyond that, it just showed me that, you know, there's something beyond talent and resources. And, and really that internal chemistry can trump anything if it's strong enough. And that's really what I learned. And, you know, those 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 Aussie teams, there were so many that were so good, and there's others that are in my you know second tier. You know the Craig Cricket teams, the Ponting and Waugh teams, and the St George Dragons. This incredible you know rugby team that won 11 straight championships in uh, in Australia. So you see it over and over, and I think you know it, it only proves the point that there's something else going on. You know, it's not. It's not just having the best athletes and the best resources and the best coaches and the biggest population to draw from. You know, it's uh, there's something else that's just as powerful. And, you know, you can put together a great team much more easily in a big country with uh, or, or in a famous franchise with a lot of resources. But um, there's no way to corner the market on sustained dominance, on building a dynasty. That is a, a special thing that really just comes down to the internal composition of the team yeah and i think what's really interesting about the hockey roos the women's national field hockey team particularly under rick charlesworth was this idea of leaderful teams where you know to your book is they stacked their entire team with captains and so they said instead of having one captain we have a list of 20 players all 20 are captains and they're all expected to act like captains and uh, you know, they were given responsibilities throughout the team. And, you know, what I've thought about subsequent to that is this idea with what you were just talking about there, where it's kind of ingrained in the Australian culture anyway, this idea of mateship and and supporting each other. And, uh, you know, almost the, the, a lot of the, the kind of what you would deem captaincy traits um, are kind of ingrained. And so I, I think it being a, a national team, really help them execute that idea as well. And I was talking about this on another podcast recently. I'm not sure that same idea would work in a club team where you would bring together cultures, you know, like a Premier League team now where there's players from 15 different countries. It was just a really interesting dynamic being Australian and, you know, having this idea. And, and so how did you perceive it when when you went to study that idea and that team under Rick Charlesworth? That was a fascinating team because, um, you know, Charlesworth was very, you know, as a captain himself, I think he was suspicious of the tradition. And, you know, the thing that struck me about his his leadership style of the team was, you know, he, he did everything he could to do away with captaincy because he believed that everybody should take responsibility. Um, and 
that was so fascinating to explore because, you know, the real rock of the team was Rochelle Hawks, who was, you know, had been the captain, an incredible captain, undefeated captain for many years. And um, she was, she was great, but, you know, he kept kind of demoting her, you know, he would have a captaincy group and then he'd have a larger captaincy group. And then finally, uh, you know, when she, uh, played in 2000 in, in the Sydney Olympics and, and won. I mean, right before the final, he did not make her captain, which was, you know, would have been a gutting thing for most people. But she had the, uh, you know, the emotional control, the, the personal strength to, to get through that and play well. But um, but it was an experiment that was interesting. And I think, you know, I, I, I didn't condemn it. I don't, I don't, I think the thing that is important to remember is, you know, a lot of people think, well, you, well, this, this, so this book means you have to put a C on someone and hold them up as the captain. And, you know, that's not the case. I think you hit on it perfectly. You know, I think that it's important to have one person who is, uh, you know, understood by everyone to be the captain. But what that means is not that that person has some inherent greatness. It's that, that person is going to run into the burning building if no one else will. You know, that's all that it means. It means that that person is hypervigilant and making sure that nothing is going to go undone. Any important leadership functions, they're going to take care of it if nobody else will. But, you know, at the same time, the research on these on great teams that, that I like the most um, is very clear on this point. It's like all that matters inside a team is that the important leadership functions get done. You know, and a great captain, you know, will do many of those functions, but they also need help. And a great captain wants help, you know, because all of the things that I found that they do, all of the traits, the emotional control, the relentlessness, the, 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 the descent, um, you know, all the things that they, that they have to show and have to do, the way they communicate intensely with everybody one-on-one, you know, all, all these qualities are, are very time-consuming and difficult. And, you know, I think they're all happy to have help and, and to not have to do it all themselves. You know, I think that the, the thing that you'll see, and this is what I, I always say to people, if you, you, if you pick the right leader, you know, as a manager of a team, you know, you're going to make a powerful statement of what you value. And when people start to realize you've got the right person, that person is going to show very clearly that they care more about the collective goals of the team than their own. And they will put the team ahead of themselves in every situation. After a while, they start to get everyone's trust and everyone relaxes into their role. You know, they're able to do whatever it is that they can do and contribute to leadership. And the superstars in particular benefit because, you know, a lot of superstars think, you know, they, they feel guilty for not taking a bigger leadership role. Uh, but, you know, they're busy being superstars. And frankly, they're probably better off left alone to, to do whatever it is they need to do to prepare and to help as they can. And but once you have that person in the middle of your team, it just takes an incredible load off everyone. And Tom Brady said this once when I asked him this, the question about why the Patriots was so great. And, and he says this a lot. And he says, uh, you do your job so that everybody else can do their job. There's no big secret to it, right? So when he first said it, I thought it was really simplistic. But then I realized what he was saying, which is, you do your job. By saying you do your job, what he's not saying is that his job as a leader as a person who does incredible work and emotional labor and all these difficult things behind the scenes that nobody sees and is a superstar of the team. I mean, his job's incredibly difficult. He's a unicorn. I mean, most people can't do all of that and, and have any, he has no time left over for anything else. And his job's incredibly difficult, but he does his job and that allows everyone else to do theirs. And, you know, that's really it. You know, it's not, 
it's really pretty simple. You know, this leadership pattern, it's, it's simple in that, you know, I think there are just some pretty rigid principles and things you have to do. It's not easy, though. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. It's really hard. And not, it's not for everyone. No, it's really not. And as you were talking there, there's a couple of things that, that I was thinking, and this is going back to our point about anecdotal. As a football coach, really all you care about is the anecdotal side of things. So you don't necessarily care about the scientific side of it where you know, science would say, well, is this replicable? And if it's replicable, we can prove it. But I only need it to work once. And so you know, one of the, one of the things... I guess that uh, that I've tried to spread, and and you know, hearing you talk, you're saying as well is these things are as as unique as DNA, and so trying to copy them from everyone else doesn't necessarily work. Whether that's the hockey roos, whether that's what the Patriots are doing, you know, how many how many teams have tried to copy what the Patriots have have done over the last you know 20 years? Grabbed their players, grabbed their staff, and and not been able to reproduce the on-field success that they've had. And and the other thing that I was thinking there as well, to your position on identifying roles, you know, you doing your job. The funny thing is, particularly in the business world, we know what everyone's good at. We know that the best, the high-flying salesperson is the best. And everyone on the team knows that that person plays that role. Everyone knows that there's, you know, maybe a mother figure that kind of looks after everyone, et cetera, et cetera. But what we try to do is uh, remove the transparency around that and say, you know, the, the, the big sales guy, he's, he's just like everyone else. But it's, it's really not true. And when you strip that away and allow everyone to be transparent about their role that they play within that team, everyone actually gets better because the sales guy just gets to go, I'm just going to go and sell to the best of my ability. Exactly. No, that's it. And that's the liberation. I mean, one of the great underrated people, I think, other than great, great captains, which are often misidentified, is is the unselfish superstar. You know, and that was one of the things I kept seeing on these teams because, you know, Brazil was such a great example because, you know, I, I, I sat down with Pele to interview him about, you know, these great Brazilian teams that were on my list in the, the 58-62 World Cup teams. And, uh, you know, I asked him, so tell me about the captaincy. And, you know, and he's like, oh, I was never the captain. You know, at that point, I didn't, I didn't didn't know that, and I was shocked. Uh, you know, the captain of, of that great team was this guy Hildurado Bellini, who he was a central defender who never scored a goal in his entire career with Brazil. I mean, he was a tackling dummy basically for the other team's best forwards. And you know, he was he was a quiet presence, that person who held the team together and did everything behind the scenes. And you know, the Brazilians were fascinating over that era because they all understood that Pelé should never and would never be the captain because. Being Pelé, you're playing at that level and, and being a global, the first global sports superstar. I mean, you know, one of the most famous people on the planet. I mean, that was a job, you know, and the, the idea that he could was going to run around, you know, doing all the little, you know, worrying over all the minutiae of the team was, was ridiculous to everyone. And, you know, they had this, they, they hit on this perfect formula, you know, and they never... The captains of the teams were never the stars. You know, it was always it was always someone playing that role. And you know, I think that at the same time, though, you know, in Pelé, it's, it's just very similar. It's with Dan Carter, with the All Blacks, and um, uh, and Tom Brady too. Even though he is a leader, uh, it's Steph Curry. You know, it's Lionel Messi. It's there are cert- there's a certain breed of superstar that is team oriented. 
you know, and, and this is such a difficult thing to do. And Sue Bird, who's the um, a captain of the U.S. national women's basketball team and has won a bunch of WNBA titles and college titles, I mean, she's one of the best active captains and leaders in all of sports. And she told me something so fascinating. She said one of the things that helped her, she's not a big scorer. She's rarely the best player on her team, but she she said, I understood at some point that to be a superstar, you have to be selfish, a little selfish. Even though you're team-oriented, you, you still have to take the big shot. You have to take, even when you're not on, you still have to take the shots. You have to separate yourself from the group a little bit in order to play at that level. And that, you know, makes it very difficult to also lead the team. You know, and stars have to be given that leeway, and someone else has to do all the sort of mining behind the scenes to allow them to have those moments of selfishness because, you know what, they're the best players. They have to be more involved, even on days and nights that they're not doing well. And to me, that was a huge revelation and uh, for me, too, and, and I think it was the key to her greatness as a leader is understanding that it was her role to do everything else that had to be done so that those superstars have those moments where they can just immerse themselves in, in, in doing what they can do that no one else can do. And, you know, it takes a special kind of star to be able to um, to do that. And I think, you know, next to a great captain and next to a coach that, you know, understands that leadership and can partner with that captain as a peer, I think the most important thing you can have is an unselfish star. And, you know, it seems to me when you look at the draft and you look at all the, the, the available talent and you look at the talent level, very few people think about that and think about whether that person is capable of being a superstar sometimes and then just another guy wearing the same jersey at other times. And, you know, that to me is another huge, just undervalued quality in, in players. So let's talk about business for a second. For the the managers that are out there, the directors, you know, the term captain might not necessarily resonate. So how do we find this person on our team? If I'm a a finance manager and, and I've got, you know, 10 people on my team. How do I find this person that, that you're calling the captain? Even within my hierarchy, I might have, you know, one deputy and then everyone else is just equal on the team. How do I find this person that you're talking about? I think the key for any business is, you know, there's so many different levels of management in a business that I think, you know, the idea is to make sure that this kind of leadership cascades all the way down the organization and everyone starting with the CEO, the person at the top has to be very careful about who their second is and who their, who their, their direct reports and what those people are like and how they lead. And those people need to take the same care with the people that they put in charge of their, their report to them and so on. So you, you want to try to install this throughout the whole organization. But I think the difference, I mean, the, the important thing to do when you're, when you're evaluating these people is, you know, you have to absolutely have to look behind the clamoring pack of people that are all raising their hands and saying, pick me, you know, because most of the great leaders are either reluctant to do it or don't necessarily even think of themselves as leaders or, you know, they, they understand how the role that they're playing is important, but they don't see it as being leadership because they've been conditioned to think that the leaders, all those things I mentioned, a superstar, a huge charisma, silver tongue, kind of shiny person, you know, I think you need to look around. And, and I say this to people, and they think I'm crazy, but, you know, you're looking for the lead, who the leader of your team is. I mean, go in, watch that team as they're interacting in some unstructured way, and you know, ask yourself, who's the last person in this team that I would think is a leader? You know, <laughs> you know it might not be that person. 
But you're going to be a lot closer to the right answer in most cases than you will be if you ask who's the most obvious leader. And, you know, it's, it's, it's subtle things. I mean, it's, it's really about looking for a communication pattern, uh, you know, I think is a great place to start. It's, you know, Tim Duncan was my example in the book of this, of someone who is not charismatic and not interesting and gives terrible <laughs> interviews and everyone thinks he's totally boring and he is, you know, in public, but, you know, inside that team, he has this style of communication where he doesn't give speeches. None of these captains gave rah-rah speeches. It wasn't how they communicated. They all, you know, were very comfortable approaching everyone and they had these very intense one-on-one conversations. They were just, their eyes were always moving. They were always looking for that person who needed encouragement or needed a kick in the butt or needed to, to talk through something. And they had these intense conversations and they were conversations. They were not one side. They listened as much as they spoke, but they always engaged very intensely with eye contact and gestures and touch and, you know, all the things that show that they were, um, paying attention and they were committed to to that person and what that person needed and you know that's one way to find it you know it's that person who circulates widely you know inside the team and talks to everyone not the person who's up on the up on the soapbox giving the big address it's the person who's doing the quiet work around the, around the sides and you know one of the things I, I i think is so crucial is you know we all think that you know, we all think that people need to express and project confidence and people need to be interesting, interesting lives outside of work. And, you know, we're looking for these kind of exceptional people that light up a room. And, you know, those qualities are just not, I mean, they're, they're great to have, but they're not important in terms of leadership. And I think, you know, we need to look for those people who don't take credit, who are always trying to pass off their accomplishments on others and are always bringing up the team. Uh, people like Bill Russell, who didn't want to be in the Hall of Fame because he's like, why am I in the Hall of Fame and not all my teammates? I mean, that's that's a genuine um, bias that he has, you know, because he really thinks about the collective goals of the team and not his own personal ones. He doesn't separate them. And, you know, those are the people we're looking for. So the more someone expresses interest in, in being the leader, the more suspicious you should be uh, of their motives. You know, it's not a personal thing. It's an incredible burden. And it requires you to give constantly of yourself in ways that no one will ever appreciate. And, you know, if you're doing, if you're the face of the team, you're probably doing it wrong. You know, if you're the person who's, you know, held up and gets all the attention for success, you're probably not doing it right. You know, there's a rare person out there. They're not that rare, but there are people out there who really are devoted to making sure that the team succeeds. And that's all they need. And they don't need individual awards and accolades and we don't look for those people you know in fact you know when times are going well so many companies in silicon valley have seen this i mean they just start thinning out the middle management they just get rid of these people they're not stars who needs them right and you know what happens is when they hit their first headwinds you know you two things happen i mean the first is you know these these founders have never really been through this start to overfunction and they throw out all these ideas and some of them are really dumb you know and toxic and and at the same time, the stars, these people who could work anywhere, are starting to think, well, maybe it's time to just dust off the resume, right? And suddenly those two tent poles your business is built on fall over, and, you know, what happens to the tent? It's so true, isn't it? And we're starting to see that more and more. The, the funny thing, and I've been talking of soapboxes, I've been on this soapbox for a little while now, is I'm not really sure why we are heralding Silicon Valley and the leadership that's coming from there. And yes, it's a, a very particular type of leadership and it 
you know, Silicon Valley certainly is a bubble that's interesting, but I'm not convinced that that's the best source of leadership to be looking at at the moment. I'm not convinced that people that are starting companies for the next big exit are the people that we should be, uh, you know, holding up on our shoulders and saying, this, this guy or girl's awesome. And, um, you know, to the point that we started with, this is why I like sports because I, I think there are examples there. Uh, have you watched the, the Manchester City documentary on Amazon? I haven't seen it yet. No, I'm dying to watch it. I have to carve out some time. You you this will love company. it. Yeah. Yeah. What what's your what's your take on on Man City because they're headed towards almost qualifying for your criteria with what they're doing at the moment. They they're headed towards something that maybe hasn't been done before and and having sustained success. Uh so what's your take on them even from an outsider's perspective? I think they are a great example of how this works. I mean, I think you look at all the money they threw around fruitlessly for so long. And, you know, I think, you know, Guardiola was a great stabilizing presence. And, you know, I, I don't think you can overlook Vincent Company and the role that he's played uh, on that team. I mean, he's a terrific leader and a rare leader. And, you know, one of Guardiola's great things, and Guardiola's been around, obviously, you know, his Barcelona team is on my list. And, you know, he had Carlos Puyol. Um, but everyone forgets that you know he had one year of experience with the uh, with the B team before he took over, and you know he played with some of these guys, um, and he was certainly not a you know no one thought he was the future of coaching at that point, but uh, became an amazing manager. And and I think what he understood and and the relationship he had with Puyol was fascinating because they were they were they played together. I mean they knew each other well and. Um, you know, and, and this was this was the foundation of that partnership. And I think the great coaches on on my list uh, always had that partnership: Popovich and Duncan, Belichick and Brady. You see it over and over again that ability to um, uh, to, to have a real partnership. I mean, to have real give and take, to be able to argue and fight. And you know, sometimes the manager gets their way, sometimes the player and uh, the captain does. And and that partnership is something we don't think of when we're choosing a second, whether it's in business or um, in any other realm. I mean, it's not something we really think of. And, you know, the worst person you can have is a yes man in that role. I mean, you need someone who's really going to be a partner. And, you know, he went to Bayern and he had one of the great captains of the era and Philip Lom. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure it was a huge draw for him to go there. And they were successful. And, you know, I think with Vincent Company, he understands um, the dynamic that needs to be in place. And I really think that's the difference. You know, there's so much talent in the Premier League, you know, up and down. And, you know, over and over again, you see these teams that are stacked, you know, but they can't win. And Arsenal's my favorite example under under Arsene Wenger. I mean, uh, you know, Arsene Wenger did not like that confrontation. He didn't like having a partner. He didn't want confrontation. You know, it just wasn't something that he liked. And, you know, he didn't think the captaincy was important. I mean, he gave it to Robin Van Persie once just as a way of trying to keep him on the team. And he left anyway, and they were bad. And, you know, I think that's really the difference in a league with that much talent and that much parity. Um, you know, I think I think what you're seeing in Man City is um, you're seeing that the, the real understanding of, of how to sustain excellence and that it's really a matter of the internal dynamics of the team and, and that relationship between the manager and the captain and how strong the captain is. And, you know, Jordan Henderson at Liverpool is really emerging, I think, as, as a terrific leader, you know, and was a one of the... Um, 
one of the uh, captains under Kane and of the English national team. So um, that's it. <laughs> I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I, I, you have to have talent, you have to have a great manager, and all these other things have to go your way. But if you don't have those internal dynamics, you don't have a leader like company or someone in the mix, um, you know, you're going to be up and down. I think soccer is a really interesting study for your theory in particular because it strips out the I hate putting it like this but the the American kind of aggressiveness and, and the idea that like we've been talking about you know shouting on a soapbox is leadership or or that's you know how teams operate within sporting environments and what really struck me about the Man City documentary and being a fly on the wall for the whole season is uh, I guess how level-headed it is through the ups and the downs and how the downs don't go down too far and the ups don't go up too far and and don't get me wrong there's certainly celebration and dancing and you know clapping and, and chanting and all that sort of stuff in the dressing room but what's really interesting is there's it yeah it, it kind of takes away that macho-ness to a certain extent and is just very level-headed and even in the way Guardiola addresses the team at halftime when they're down is just full of filling them with information. And, and that's really empowering for players because, you know, they're smart players. These are world-class players. You got, you know, Aguero and De Bruyne and company and, and all these guys. And so just give them more and more information and let them go and execute. And it was very different from, you know, the Dallas Cowboys example, which is the one before that, uh, on Amazon. Where, where it's it's very much still, you know, butt heads and, and slap backs and things like that. And so it's a very different study. And, yeah, I would be interested, even within Champions League winners, to look at your idea and the pairings of the coaches and the captains. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I, I looked at uh, Alex Ferguson and Roy Keane um, as an example of this when it was going well and you know, before it all fell apart. Keane is a flawed captain, but um, but they had that sort of a partnership. And, you know, it was a it was fascinating what Ferguson said about about Keane and about his captains in general. I mean, he said, uh, and I think this is what Guardiola understands, which is, you know, he would do everything. Like, I do everything. Everything that happens in that side that building is my responsibility. I look into every detail. There's nothing that I don't get involved in. You know, all the way up to the minute that the match begins, and then it's up to my captain to execute on the field. And you know, you remember Ferguson. You know, all these modern managers. You know, they they're they're in their you know Amani suit. They're jumping up and down and screaming. And, and he just laughed and said, "What are they doing?" You know, he would sit there in the dugout with his arms folded over his chest like he was about to fall asleep because he you know, he knew that that was not his place. He's like, if you're yelling at them, they can't hear you, and if they can hear you, they're just you're just distracting them. I mean, it's you know that that's not what a manager needs to do. And you know, he saw that separation and that partnership as being crucial. And you know, Guardiola has definitely understood that. And, you know, he's such a great example of how you do this right. And, you know, one of the things that he did that shocked everyone at Barcelona um, was he never went in the dressing room. You know, these were guys he played with. I mean, they were friends. And he understood that the players had to have their own place and he shouldn't be there. And, you know, he's maintained that. He's also done some fascinating things with, with Barcelona. He... You know, he he changed the the training schedule, and most of these club teams they practice in the morning and they all disperse. Um, and 
he changed the training and did this at Bayer too, to the uh, afternoons and the evenings so that the players would eat dinner together. And he always ends practice with kind of a funny, wacky drill that gets everyone kind of laughing. And yeah, it's these little things that you do as a, as a manager to, to sort of create that framework to allow that kind of leadership to to blossom. And, and that's really the, the genius of the great manager, I think. And in addition to the, to the tactics, it, it's really, it's really that, and you know, it's so underrated and it's not something that we, um, we always look to. We think that there's this cult of personality with the manager, you know, we think the manager, I think we assign too much credit and too much blame to them, um, for, for the results. But, you know, we also think that, you know, there's something in the force of their personality is, what drives the team, and that's true to some extent, but really it's about understanding and cultivating that that internal dynamic that, that you need inside a team. Yeah, I think the humility with Guardiola as well in terms of, I've heard him say, you know, I don't make the tactics work, the players make the tactics work. And, you know, they're a tactical masterclass right now in terms of how they're beating teams and beating down on teams, which is not easy to do in the Premier League. It's probably the hardest league to do it in. And, you know, to get up afterwards and say, you know, I don't make this work. They they do it. Uh, you know, is just something that you don't traditionally associate with, even managers in the English game. So you know, I, I agree with you, and I, I that's why I was interested in asking your opinion because I think he's really at the forefront of changing this whole landscape and kind of showing us some of those smart things that you can do. You can reorganize your workday within business to to get everyone doing things differently that are more you know internal dynamic driven. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah they're, they're, that's true. I, I think there are three parts to it, really. I mean, I think you have to be able to identify the right leadership candidates, which all those things we were talking about. I mean, you have to just sort of use a different eye. And then the second part is you have to cultivate those leaders because you know no one shows up even if they have the right instincts. They still need to understand how to do it and and you know what is important and what leadership is all about and. That's that's a really important role for a manager. And then the third part is that framework you talked about. It's just it's just building an intelligent design that um, you know gives the the that team leader those team leaders the room they need to work, but also uh, you know enhances the kind of emotion and, and feeling that you know um, that uh, that produces that long term success. So you know those are the three phases and. Um, it's just shocking how little there is out there about just cultivating leaders. You know, I think so often I, you've probably seen this in, in business, you know, where you, you find someone you think has all the right attributes and qualities and then you make him the leader and you quickly are shocked because either one, they turn into a monster. I mean, they start ordering people around and putting themselves above the team and doing all these things that they think a leader is supposed to do, you know, even though that's not who they are. And, um, you know, and, and, Others just you, you realize that they don't really want to do the work. They know what needs to be done, but they just don't have the motivation to do it. And um, you see that in sports a lot. I think when someone becomes captain, and you quickly realize that they just don't want to put the work in that they need to, to put in in order to make the team great. I think you saw that with the Spurs and Kawhi Leonard. I mean, I think they thought Kawhi Leonard was you know Tim Duncan's replacement, and um, you know he's a terrific basketball player, but he just didn't he didn't he didn't have the motivation. He didn't really want to be that person. He didn't want to do all that selfless kind of quiet grunt work behind the scenes. And, you know, I think he, he's obviously up there now in your neck of the woods and doing great. But, you know, I, I think I think you have to, to make 
make sure he's surrounded by people who are willing to do the unglamorous things behind the scenes. Yeah, the other one there is coaches that do well and then fall off a cliff. And it's almost like it can potentially run out at times as well. And it it makes me think about something that Igor Kokoskov told me, the Phoenix Suns coach. I interviewed him for my book was he said, there's no such thing as a good coach, only a good coach for that team. And I thought that was really interesting and something that you don't hear very often. But yeah, I think we need to explore the fact that leadership might end. And what I mean by that is, you know, with that team, you might run out of time. And I think that's okay. I think if if we can be honest and transparent about that and bring in a leader that's more right at that time, whether that's two years down the track, I think that's okay. But again, that goes back to a whole framework discussion like we are talking about earlier where we would be ripping down just about everything we've built in terms of leadership over the last 100 years. Yeah, so I, there are ways, and you see managers and coaches who are able to win in different places. Um, you know, but I, I think the question is, is sustaining it. I mean, I just there's a difference between you know being able to um, understand how to quickly assemble a winning team that will win a championship, and there's and there's an entirely different job, which is building a culture and overseeing a culture that can can sustain itself and. There's very few have been able to do it. I think Alex Ferguson is fascinating because, you know, he had that great run when Roy Keane was captain, and, you know, they, they had the treble, and they won three straight premierships, and, um, you know, that was tremendous. And then he was able to replicate that again and win three more, you know, an entirely different cast of, of, of people. And I think that, to me, is, you know, Guardiola you may be in the same boat soon. I mean, I think that shows you that there's an understanding there of how to build a culture. And, and you know, it's so rare. <laughs> You know, and I don't think you can you can expect that you're going to be able to find a manager who understands that because it's just like lightning striking. It's so rare um, that, you know, you need to start thinking about, um, you know, making sure your manager understands that they need to cultivate the, the team leaders and, and to work with them. And, you know, I think a lot of managers can be successful if they understand that at least once. I think it's hard to do it again because I think most of them don't really figure this out until later in their careers. No. They don't. Hey, Sam, uh, you're right in the thick of things now. What is kind of captivating you at the moment? What's keeping you intellectually engaged now that you've written a book, it's out there, all these different things have happened? What are you jamming on at the moment? The question I kept getting asked over and over was uh, surprising to me. I, mean, I, I figured I was in for years of, of defending my, my thesis, basically. But uh, the question I get the most is, okay, how do we do this? You know, how do we do it? Can we actually systematically do this inside our organization? And so that's really, for me, the great next challenge is just how do you implement this? And so a lot of the work that I'm doing now, I'm working with some teams over the Chicago Bears, uh, and I've met, I've met with the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee and some college uh, teams, and I've talked to a lot of companies about their process. And so that's kind of what I'm doing now, which is um, trying to help teams figure out how to do this and how to kind of build a culture in this way purposely from the beginning and to try to identify these people and, you know, put them in these uh, roles early and to try to, to create this this kind of culture. And, you know, there's no roadmap for it, so it's kind of difficult and, you know, it's kind of trial and error as we go. But, um, but I think there's a way to do it. I think that organizations can be very systematic about this, and I think the thing that they don't do is leadership planning. 
Um, and teams never do this. I mean, they just never have a leadership plan. They plan everything else down to the minute. Um, but they don't think about what happens, uh, what role someone is playing in terms of the leadership of the team and what happens if that person leaves and who will fulfill that role and how, uh, and making sure that, that they've got all their bases covered. And um, that's kind of where I'm heading. And, and, and right now it's, you know, it's a combination of trying to do it by trial and error and also just doing a lot more research about, you know, methods for um, those three phases I talked about, identifying leadership and then cultivating it and, and, and building a framework. And I'm trying to look for those universal things that I think work for, um, you know, are not just specific to sports or to business, but, but um, can be implemented, I think, easily by by any kind of group. Um, I think those are the most valuable things. So, yeah, that's it. I mean, I'm, I'm deep in the thick of, you know, talking to a lot of sports executives and company executives about um, their process and trying to learn as much as I can and trying to come up with a methodology. And I hope it doesn't take me 12 years, but, <laughs> uh, but I don't know. I mean, you know, the way it's a big, it's a big complex thing. So who knows? So you you've know. gone from Wall Street Journal editor writing a 900,000 page word on the best teams ever to consulting sports teams and some of the biggest companies around on captaincy and leadership. Yeah, not the trajectory I expected <laughs> in my life at all. No, it's, it's weird. Uh, you know, I, 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 it's, it's very strange. And, and it's weird as a, someone who's been in newspapers and someone who covered sports for so long to be kind of on the other side of the curtain. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's really interesting to see it from the other perspective um, and a great deal of fun. So, uh, you know, I hope that we can get some answers and see some results and, you know, figure out a way to make teams and leaders better, um, you know, at all levels. But, um, but it's been fun and, and a great ride. And, and uh, you know, I, I think this rabbit hole is going to – I don't think I'm ever going to get out of it. I think, you know, I think, you know, this is a groove that um, – that's starting to happen. I mean, it was a study the other day that I saw, um, you know, one of the first serious academic studies about um, team chemistry, and I'd never really seen one before. And, uh, you know, I think people are starting to come around to this idea that there is this intangible thing, and we've all thrown up our hands because we can't quantify it, and we can't you know, easily come up with some um, ROI for uh, the, the investments we make in, in leadership, but um, but I think it's it's crucial, and and I think the state of the world and the state of leadership generally is is showing us that it's time to do something. So I feel like there's a lot of work to be done in this uh, area in the future. Well, I don't think there's anyone better to do it. To be honest with you, mate, um, I love that you've got that different perspective on it, and you're not just going to regurgitate things that have been in the industry. And I'm just talking about the broader leadership industry. You know, you come with a fresh set of eyes and uh, you're a great storyteller. Um, and I, I think you're the right person to do it. And uh, I'm happy to follow as you blaze a trail. Um, and I'll be there to support you along the well, you've way. You've done some great work too, I must say. <laughs> Thank you. Where can people find you? How can they follow you? Where can they get the book? All that jazz. Uh, the book is, you know, sale in all the usual places um uh, amazon and barnes and noble and all the places uh every goddamn uh, every goddamn and, airport bookstore you've ever seen i think i, I saw it so you never know reykjavik airport i was in recently that's there it's it's everywhere right i'm big in iceland I guess. <laughs> uh, uh, 
but yeah, no, I, I write, you know, rec- a regular column about leadership for the Wall Street Journal. It's now that's online. You'll have to subscribe, though. I'm sorry. Uh, and um, I'm on Twitter a little bit at, at Sam Walkers with an S, uh, where I need to be more active. But uh, uh, but yeah, no, I'm out there, and you know, I love talking to people about this, and you know, I do a lot of speaking and you know, events, and so I, I try to be as uh, as accessible as I can. Wonderful, mate. Well, this has been great. I've got a lot out of it. I'm sure everyone else has as well. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Cody. Great pleasure. At this stage of the show, most podcasts will ask you to go and leave a five-star rating. But if you're going to go somewhere, I'd rather you go and check out Athletic Greens. If you follow me on social media, you'll see me doing two things, exercising and traveling. At my last checkup, my doctor told me I had the lowest cholesterol she'd ever seen but I was crucially low in a whole range of vitamins and minerals that I'd never heard of. And as a result, my hair was in terrible shape. I went looking for the best all-in-one solution I could find, and I landed on Athletic Greens. I found it an easy habit to get on board with. A simple routine of one scoop in some cold water every morning before I have breakfast, and I have all my bases covered. And now, my hair is back to normal. And if you still don't believe me, I'm an Australian promoting a product created by a New Zealander, so you know I'm not joking around. I can't stress this enough. Jump over to athleticgreens.com forward slash Cody and claim your special offer today. Five free travel packs with your first purchase. athleticgreens.com forward slash Cody. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't Book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.